0: Welcome to Essential Ethics and our highlight series from the 2021 12th National Paediatric Bioethics Conference, which was brought to you by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre in September 2021. The conference theme was Deciding with Children. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. In this podcast, Elise Byrne from the Queensland Children's Hospital Centre for Health Ethics and Law discusses the emerging issue of parents recording their child's illness journey and sharing it on social media. Elise considers whether this is the parent's story to tell, even if the child is very young at the time. The post remains, but the young child will grow up. Elise's presentation was a fascinating insight into the interface of social media, parental interests and children's rights. Elise won the Children's Bioethics Centre Patrons Prize, named in honour of the founding director of the Children's Bioethics Centre, Associate Professor Hugo Gold. Join us now as we hear Elise Byrne present, check your privacy settings. Should a child's illness journey be shared on social media?
1: When a parent shares their child's illness journey publicly, This qualifies as a specific type of sharenting, which is a term used to describe parents sharing images, videos and news of their child on social media. I completed this research as part of a Masters of Bioethics at Monash University. And at that time, I was particularly interested in the implications of this topic for children with heavy burden type illness, such as childhood cancer or neurodegenerative disorders, where the child was unable to provide consent, both for treatment and for the sharing of information due to their age and or because of their condition. One thing I was particularly interested in was the implications of public sharing on social media for children who will never develop the capacity to provide consent for treatment or sharing of information due to the impact of their illness or disability on their cognitive development. Uh, But today, I will talk more broadly about children who experience chronic illness or disability across the spectrum. So most social media platforms require users to be over the age of 13 to hold their own account. However, a lot of parents choose to create accounts in their child's name and will narrate the account from the child's perspective, consequently circumnavigating the age requirement. It should also be recognised that many of these accounts describe the medical treatment the child is receiving in great detail, including information about the healthcare professionals contributing to the care of the child. So whether we choose to be or not, we as healthcare professionals are inextricably part of this experience. My example here of Warrior Luna gives an idea of the types of accounts I'm talking about. Searching hashtag childhood cancer on Instagram, for example, yields hundreds of thousands of posts, which come from hundreds of thousands of accounts featuring children with cancer and their journey, and frequently use the child's name in the account name. Some of these accounts generate thousands to hundreds of thousands of followers, and some posts may be shared by other accounts, including celebrity accounts that generate millions of followers and shares. An early example of this from 2012 is a blog in the U.S. started by a mother to document her child's journey through treatment for cancer. Her blog was in turn read by the singer Taylor Swift, who wrote a song using the blog as inspiration for the lyrics and performed it at a cancer charity event with the mother's consent. The song was named after the child. And drew many fans of Swift, many of whom were still children themselves, to the blog and to the child's cancer journey. Sadly this child didn't survive his illness, however the song is still readily available and I'm interested to explore your thoughts in the chat um, and discussion later as to whether you think the points in my presentation are still relevant once a child has died. I want to start with a brief overview of children on social media today. Most children today have a presence on social media prior to their birth with their parents sharing ultrasound images to announce that they are expecting. A survey was conducted in the UK and published online in 2018 found that there are approximately 1500 images of a child shared online prior to their fifth birthday and it is likely that this number continues to grow. Interestingly, this survey found that 10% of parents were worried that what they had shared might undermine their child's future. For example, if the content was viewed by an employer or university, although this didn't stop them from sharing the content. In 2020, the highest income earner on YouTube was a nine-year-old boy who has a toy reviewing channel, and he's actually held that position since 2017. So our children today are very much present on social media. In a healthcare setting, we accept that most young children don't have the capacity to provide consent for treatment, and this is most commonly because of their age and developmental status, or for some children because their cognition has been affected by their illness and this limits their capacity, and we've discussed this a lot during this conference. Consequently, children require a surrogate decision maker to provide consent for treatments, and in most cases, this will be their parents. As healthcare professionals, we acknowledge that medical information is sensitive and therefore protecting a patient's privacy and maintaining patient confidentiality is a tenet of modern healthcare and is a vital part of the codes of ethics that we adhere to. So what happens then when a parent who is entrusted to make decisions in their child's best interests and to provide informed consent for their medical treatment makes a decision to share their child's medical information publicly on a social media platform, which I argue is not in their best interests and is a breach of their privacy and confidentiality. Here we face a conundrum where a parent's right to parent their child how they wish may be in conflict with the child's right to privacy and confidentiality. The UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is a comprehensive document outlining the rights of the child. The convention was actually signed in 1989 and effective from 1990, a time in which the internet was in its infancy. In fact, 1989 was the year that the internet became publicly available in Australia, although there was no social media as we know it today. The UN Convention on the Rights of the Child states that children have a right to their own identity and a right to privacy, and that governments should act to protect these rights for children. This document is still relevant. However, it is important that we look at these rights in the context of a contemporary digital society and consider the relevance and implications of these rights for children that are having a digital identity formed by their parents. These rights of privacy and identity are a key factor in the child's right to an open future. Joel Feinberg formulated the principle of the right to an open future for children, which means that a parent shouldn't do anything to or for their child that limits their future options. And it's important to mention that he means really big deal things. For example, choosing to have your child surgically sterilised violates their right to re- future right to reproduce, which is something that they're unable to do in childhood. Choosing to enroll your child in piano lessons, thus potentially denying their future as a concert violinist, doesn't qualify here. Feinberg proposes that the difference lies in the child's interests and that when it comes to their open future, a child has a far greater interest in matters that promote their welfare than matters that promote their aspirations and goals. Ultimately, because without their welfare interests being met, they would be unable to formulate or achieve goals and aspirations. In my research, I have argued that the public sharing of a child's illness journey denies their right to an open future, because it builds a profile of that child that contributes to an identity that they have not had control of, and that may have an impact on their future relationships, employment and lifestyle. This may occur through third parties inferring information from posts on social media, such as their fertility, infectious status or capability to participate in a workplace, even if that information is no longer relevant. Parents of sick children have a unique experience of parenting that is very different to the experiences of other parents. Often these parents experience social isolation due to prolonged hospitalisation, increased stress, and have had to make decisions that have impacted on their own lives that they hadn't planned for. For example, giving up work or moving their family to a metropolitan area to be closer to a hospital. It is therefore important to acknowledge that the child's illness journey is also a parent's journey. In these circumstances, social media offers a means to connect with other parents on a global scale who are sharing this unique parenting experience to find information and to raise awareness about their child's illness, and to form communities with other parents who really do understand what they're going through. It's also important to recognize that for some parents, income will be generated through social media accounts, and that for the followers of these accounts, they can become a form of entertainment, which I think raises another set of ethical questions, which I'm not going to address in this presentation. So, for children who have had their sensitive medical information shared on social media by their parent, often in their own name, their right to an open future has been influenced and arguably denied by their parents. They have not had their rights to privacy or confidentiality upheld. They haven't consented to the sharing of this information, although in some cases they may have sort of abstractly assented. And they have no control over the information, especially when information is so easily shared and saved. Technology is rapidly changing the way we practice in the healthcare setting, in most cases for the better. Throughout my nursing career, I've seen the trajectory of many illnesses change thanks to technology. Medical technology has changed treatment modalities for many childhood cancers, metabolic diseases and genetic diseases, such that children whose illness would have certainly ended their life during childhood historically, are now able to live into adulthood, and the burden of many illnesses has eased, thanks to these treatments. Whilst this is wonderful, it means that we must display extra caution in how we think about and use technology in general, particularly with regards to social media. There are many children receiving healthcare today whose right to an open future would have historically been denied by their illness but that are now being denied this right by the publicizing and sharing of this illness via social media. Some of you might remember that a couple of years ago, a young boy with achondroplasia was bullied at school. And on the spur of the moment, his mother filmed his distressed response and shared the video on Facebook in order to raise awareness of the consequences of bullying. The video went viral very, very quickly and was shared by um, news and media outlets worldwide. Upon reflection, his mother has stated that she felt uncomfortable with the publicity her son was receiving and took the video down 24 hours later, by which time the video was absolutely embedded into the internet. You can still find the video easily today with a search of his name, as well as multitudes of media stories about the event. I think it's also worth briefly considering what the risks are to a child if their illness is curable, but their illness account generates income and popularity when they're at their sickest. And to consider that this could lead to incidences of Munchausen's by internet, by proxy, whereby a child is either kept sick or made sick in order to generate views and likes and perpetuate their popularity. Again, that's a whole separate topic that I won't go into um, in this presentation. And it's one that is really challenging to identify and evaluate and research. So here's something I want you to think about as well. Has the influence of social media changed the way you think about your work or the way you care for sick children? And I think it's okay if the answer to that is no, but maybe hopefully my presentation might might trigger some, some questions. So what do we know about this topic? Parents publicizing their children is not a new phenomenon. Christopher Robin Milne, of Winnie the Pooh fame, felt the weight of his father's work throughout the rest of his life. Quentin Kenahan featured on televi- a television program as a child in the 1970s, which was consented to by his parents. Both Quentin and Christopher Robin were placed in the public sphere by their parents, but arguably via a much more containing medium than what social media allows today. Now your parent doesn't have to be a famous novelist to share your information. Social media provides any parent with a means to share their child publicly and generate attention. Disability advocate, Stella Young, talked about the importance of not turning disabled people into inspiration porn. And disability advocate, Carly Finlay, promotes the importance of the decision to share their illness or disability being made by the person with the illness or disability when they're an adult. Social media has exploded in our society really within the last 10 years, and we need to be thinking about the implications of its use for our young people right now. There are still many questions I have about this topic and many areas for consideration for future research. As children continue to feature on illness specific public social media accounts, do their healthcare workers have a right to access the account as part of a comprehensive health assessment? And do we as healthcare workers have a responsibility to consider the implications of social media presence in childhood and educate parents? And how can we gain the child's perspective on the sharing of their illness on social media when their capacity is limited by illness or disability? I find that asking these questions generates many, many more questions, and I'm really interested to hear what you guys might
2: think. Thank you very much, Elise. That's very thought-provoking, and we have lots of Comments in
0: the chat, Uh, Richard. I might ask, um, please, John. Yeah, I really enjoyed that, and as I got to the end, I was reflecting on uh, what Laney uh, Ross said to us earlier. Is you know, as a paediatrician, are we confined as a medical healthcare advocate, or are we the entire child's advocate in their social sphere? As well. Obviously, when it goes wrong, it becomes a medical problem psychologically and maybe physically. So maybe you could argue that, but I think it does beg the question about the extent of our reach. Would you like to comment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think, like, we've talked a lot about the concepts of relational autonomy and the fact that a child is part of a family, and we can't ignore that. I think it's really important to think um, that some parents might come to a decision. In several years time and think gosh I wish I didn't actually do that and that for us planting the seed and providing some sort of education to them now um, may help them understand the potential future impacts on their child as an as an individual and that perhaps this is something that does impact a whole family
0: system. Could we, has anybody ever googled their patient I mean I I've googled well, doctor or a lawyer, but has anyone actually Googled their patient? I
1: think that's a really good question because I certainly think um, I would feel very much like I was committing some sort of terrible offence and, and breaching my patient's privacy if I did that as a healthcare professional. And I think um, we, we don't probably feel that we do have a right to do that. Are they googling us? Probably, um, but that's an entirely different thing. But sometimes, what you might find in that Google search or by exploring their social media might actually give you a very, very different insight into what's actually happening with their health. So maybe, maybe that is okay.
2: Would it be a, a reasonable step from here for for hospitals to be providing some guidance to parents about what might or might not be appropriate with the assistance of our clinical ethics committees and so on. Is that the sort of the direction in which our responsibility should take us?
1: And maybe maybe that's a really simple solution. I know in my hospital we have a lot of documentation around about patients filming and recording staff and that that's not appropriate to do that without their consent. Um, but we don't really cover anything about um, filming or photographing children, because we consider that in the domain of the parent to make that decision. Um, but I do think it would be a, a good consideration to provide some sort of information that can say, Have you thought of this? It doesn't and need to be, Don't do this. Yeah. But have you considered, or here are some considerations about your child's privacy.
2: And perhaps subtitle it, It seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it always. I don't- like a
0: good idea at the time but you know at least we might I might unleash Lainey Ross on you Um, you know know, tell somebody how to parent
1: yes I mean that well that's a very good thing I don't think we want to tell people how to parent but I think we want to um, ask them to consider the implications that what they're doing publicly may impact on their child's future in a way that they haven't considered
2: so Helen Irving has made the comment that she she agreed with my point, but pointed out that families will post whatever they they wish and 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 I accept that absolutely um what What seems to be the logical approach here is to encourage families to think before posting rather than than not post at all
1: yeah, and that's that sense it probably seems like an impossible. Task, um, but I think if we think back to other sort of public health campaigns that have worked really successfully historically, not just in a pediatric environment, but you know, wearing seatbelts and um, not smoking. Potentially, this is something that we can encourage people to to change their thinking about. And I think I do think people in general, whether it's parents or um, healthcare workers or teachers. Social media is kind of a hot topic right now, and there is a lot of talk about it, a lot of concern about it, and maybe now is really the right time to to think more deeply about the implications of this for young people.
0: Richard, uh, Katie Moore from uh, Monash Children's um, made a comment about uh, sort of the positive side. So, Gus, I don't know if we could bring Katie in.
3: I had a conversation this week with parents of a child who was extremely sick very early in life, with a very rare illness. And also to say that I share the range of ethical concerns about sharenting and thinking about the child at that time and the child in the future. And at the same time, I'm trying to think that there are maybe some small and maybe limited benefits to certainly to the parents, but potentially also to the child in terms of information gathering, and access mm. to a, you know, very, very specialist healthcare, which is what happened in this particular mm. instance. Um, so my thoughts really were perhaps it's possible to recognize that there may be ethical benefits. Although my general feeling is that those are probably limited and outweighed in, at least in volume by the potential ethical harms. And how do we approach that? And actually, my other thought was, you know, the horse has bolted. Pandora's box is well and truly opened. Even if we feel that there are significant potential ethical harms, how do we address that? I mean, it's sort of an unpoliceable issue, <laughs> the social media thing. It's just so enormously out there already.
1: Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree with that. I think it it is so important for families that have um, children with really rare Uncommon illnesses to be able to find someone else that understands what they're going through. Can they do this in a way without exposing their child? specifically i think they can Um, and that's a really valuable thing for them then oh it's so complex i think you're right the horse absolutely has bolted but historically we've we've dealt with things like this before and another example might be um, donor conceived children donor sperm conceived children Um, a lot of the ethical implications weren't considered then now these children are adults and we're now trying to scramble to manage their rights and their responsibilities and their wants So maybe thinking about this now may help us contain a future problem that we face as a lot of young people on social media are like, I didn't want any of my information shared.
0: That was Elise Byrne from the Queensland Children's Hospital Centre for Health Ethics and Law. The 12th National Paediatric Bioethics Conference was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary and the Humanity Foundation. This podcast was prepared by the Royal Children's Hospital Creative Services with help from Dr Georgina Hall. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a rating and share it with your colleagues and friends. If you would like to find out more about the activities of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference held each September, look us up on www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics, be inspired.